Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and then we'll be looking at verses 1 down to 10. So Luke chapter 19, 1 down to 10. As we come to Luke 19, 1 to 10, I want us to see this evening that this passage is here to give us certainty of one thing. Jesus saves sinners. This passage is here to remind us of the hope of the gospel that Jesus saves sinners. So the message tonight and the aim of the message tonight is to be straightforward and simple. We are going to meditate on the gospel by seeing Jesus save Zacchaeus by his grace. And we aim to do this in four parts. Firstly, we look at the chief of sinners, verses 1 to 2, and then the call of Zacchaeus, verses 3 to 6. Thirdly, the transforming power of the gospel, verses 7 and 8. And then fourthly, the son of Abraham, verses 9 to 10. So our first point, the chief of sinners, verses 1 and 2. Read along with me as I read these verses again. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. In these verses, Luke is seeking to paint the picture of the unlikeliness of this man receiving salvation. So when I say the chief are sinners, I'm not condemning Zacchaeus and saying he's the worst sinner ever, but I'm trying to build the argument that Luke is putting forth of the unlikeliness of people around Zacchaeus thinking that he would receive salvation. And so Luke seeks to build this argument by using two adjectives to describe Zacchaeus. He says that he is first the chief tax collector and that he is rich. So firstly, focusing on the chief tax collector, why is this meant to build an argument for the unlikeliness of Zacchaeus receiving salvation. Well, in the times of the Bible, tax collectors were disliked because they made their livings um, by seeking to take people's tax off them, but adding a little bit more. And we can all sympathize with this. You know when you get your paycheck and you see your wee tax reduction? Who likes that? Imagine there's a little man who comes and takes your tax, but then you know that he is intentionally skimming off the top. So Zacchaeus would have been a social outcast because of his job, though he would be specifically looked down upon by the Jews because they seen tax collectors as traitors. For, for the Jew, a tax collector would be disowned because they were working for the Romans who often oppressed the Jews. But Zacchaeus wasn't just any tax collector. We have this added word, the chief tax collector. And so this is the only time in our Bibles that we see the chief tax collector. We've seen beforehand in Luke 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But Zacchaeus is the top dog. And we have to ask, why is Luke giving us this detail? And Luke is giving us this detail, again, is to emphasize the unlikeliness of this man receiving salvation. For he was not only any tax collector, but the chief. And then the second um, adjective that Luke uses to describe Zacchaeus is, what, is that he was rich. 
And he would be because Jericho was at the heart and center of a fast trading route network. So Zacchaeus would be wrecking it in with taking all the taxes plus his extra tax. But again, we have to be asking the question, why is Luke telling us that he is rich? Because we know and we firmly believe that Jesus saves the poor and the rich. But Luke is giving us this detail to add to the unlikeliness of Zacchaeus being saved. Because if we go back, we see that Luke 19, 1 and 10 comes as a climax to a section within Luke's gospel that spans from Luke 18, 9 all the way through to our passage this evening. Within this section, Luke has been expounding the gospel of God's grace in contrast to the law. The gospel being the free offer of all that Christ has done, and the law is the demand of perfect and perpetual obedience. And we flick back to Luke 18, we see this in Luke 18, 18, with the young rich ruler who turns away from Jesus because of, wealth, because of his wealth. Therefore, Luke is making this connection with the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, because in Luke 18, 24 and 25, we hear Jesus say these words, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, which then leads the disciples to respond in despair, who then can be saved? To which Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Luke is seeking to show that through the eyes of the world, there is no hope for this man, Zacchaeus, to receive salvation. But with Jesus, there is hope, for he calls the sinner to come to him. And that flows us into our second point, the call of Zacchaeus, verses three and six. Again, read with me as I read them out loud. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, oh, just verse four, my bad. Um, no, um, yes, just verse four. So this verse is three and four. The focus here is that we see Zacchaeus' desire to seek and see Jesus. And you can imagine why if you think about what's just happened beforehand. Maybe Zacchaeus has got word of this parable of Jesus that this tax collector was justified in comparison to the Pharisee who wasn't. Or maybe he's heard about what's just happened on the way to Jericho with this blind beggar, another social outcast, being shown mercy and grace by God as he gives him this, his sight back. Though we can't know for sure, but we can build the story. And then, but two things we do know for sure, look, gives us is first of all, that it was a great crowd gathered to see Zacchaeus. And then Zacchaeus wasn't able to find a space or able to fit into the crowd. Again, building on this argument that Zacchaeus is a social outcast that no one would allow him in, even though of his prominence in society. And then secondly, we know that Zacchaeus is small in statute. And this leads him to do something out of the ordinary for a man of high standing. He climbs up a sycamore tree to get a better view. And then verses five and six, read along with me, continues this story. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. In these verses, these beautiful verses, we see the true seeker, Jesus, moving towards Zacchaeus. Because we could read verses 3 and 4 and think it was Zacchaeus' initiative that he received salvation. But think about it. He may have been up in the sycamore tree, but Jesus didn't have to stop. He could walk, about, walk on by and he would only get a glimpse of Jesus. But rather, our verses affirmed to us Jesus' intentionality in seeking out one of his lost sheep. Jesus knew exactly which tree to stop at. Jesus knew his name. Why? For Jesus knows his sheep and will not lose one. The amazing truth I want to see here is that God moves towards us in salvation. Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the one that saves sinners. An old hymn writer put it this way, which I think is helpful to encapsulate the idea that I'm trying to put forward. He says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. No, I was found of thee. The Lord moves towards us in salvation. So let's just dwell on the beauty of that truth and let's get comfort from it knowing that Christ is the one who moves towards us. Think about it. We were dead in our sins. We were, we were by default lost. We were blind sinners stumbling around in the darkness without hope. But God, being rich in mercy and grace, sought us out. For we are his, and from before the foundation of the world, the Father chose us in the Son. Not because of anything within us, but because of his gracious kindness. He graciously moved towards Zacchaeus, and he graciously moves towards us. Ephesians 1, 3 down to 14 beautifully expounds this truth by telling us that God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself before the foundation of the world. But sadly, we still get hicked up in the weeds of the word predestined. Don't miss the truth and the emphasis that God predestined us just wasn't the only thing that was said, but he predestined us in love. The truth that it were to see here as God moving towards them is that God graciously and lovingly and freely moves towards us in salvation. The glorious truth for you who are in Christ is that we love because he first loved us. This doctrine, this truth, is to give us assurance and certainty. Think about it. If God loved us before the foundation of the world, then there was never a time that he didn't love us, and there will never be a time when he stops loving us. Why? Because of Christ. Christ is our guarantor. In him we rest. So, building then upon this truth, as we look further into verse 6 and 5, we see the efficacy of Jesus's call, or we could say the power of Jesus's call towards Zacchaeus. And we see it in the words when he says, Zacchaeus, hurry, down, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. 
for I must stay at your house. It wasn't like, I want to stay at your house, but there was, there was power behind it. Think of the other disciples when Jesus calls them. They drop everything and they come. And kind of to help us think about efficacy and the power in a call, um, I want to think about two dogs that I've had in my life. So at the minute, mom and dad have a husky called Shelly, and she is an absolute character. But when she's out for a walk, if she's off the lead and you call her, she kind of looks at you, but there's no chance she's coming. She never comes. She comes in her own time, and then dad gives her a treat and says, it's not good for coming. But she, there's no power in calling her. Um, but beforehand, we used to have this dog called Cozy, and we would walk, her on, we'd walk him on Port Street Strand, and he'd be way chasing after the birds. And, dog, and, and dad would have this wee dog whistle, and he would blow it, and like, that cozy would turn right around and come straight to his feet. Or he's in the sand dunes and you can't see him, but dad blows that whistle and cozy comes no matter what. Therefore, likewise, when Jesus calls his sheep, they come no matter what. And we call this truth effectual calling, or more commonly we hear it called irresistible grace. But this can bring up objections in people's heads to this glorious doctrine. They may say, doesn't this mean that Jesus brings people into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming against the will? Absolutely not. Jesus' call is life-giving and liberating. It sets us free from the bonds and chains of sins. Jesus makes us alive by breathing life into our souls by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Or to think of Paul's imagery in 2 Corinthians, this creational light shines into the darkness of our hearts and we are made alive in Christ. Therefore, we come willingly and joyfully and receive Jesus. As we see Zacchaeus do, he, he joyfully receives Jesus in verse 6, verse 6. He hurried down and came down and received him joyfully. And by receiving Jesus, Zacchaeus will be transformed by the gospel. This call leads to transformation. This encounter with Jesus means life-changing implications, which leads to our next point, point three, the transforming power of the gospel, verses seven and eight. But firstly, just read verses seven with me. And when they saw it, they all grumbled he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This throwaway comment by these grumbling crowd is meant to be music to a believer's ear. And you may think, why? Because it gets to the heart of the gospel. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, dines with sinners. Jesus, Jesus welcomes sinners to himself. That's the glory of God's grace that he calls us who don't deserve to be seated at his table to come as beloved children. Though sadly there's this common misconception or to put it more bluntly, this satanic lie that the world has believed, believed and it is that the gospel is for good people, righteous people, people who are good living or people who deserve it. You'd be surprised how many times I hear my non-Christian friends say to me, 
You deserve all that God has given you. And I, I get what they're seeing, what they mean. They see God's grace, but they think somehow I've deserved it. But the reality is we all deserve nothing less than condemnation and hell. But the beauty of God's gospel is that he is gracious towards us. And I like to think about grace by remembering Shailin, this Christian rapper's acronym for grace. He says, God's grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. So grace, helpful way to remind this, remember this, is God's riches at Christ's expense. And this gets to the heart of the gospel. The undeserving sinner receives God's riches at Christ's expense. Or to go back to the imagery of Christ dining with sinners, we could say the gospel is poor beggars called to sit at the table of salvation with Christ to receive from him freely the bread of life and living water. And who is this invitation sent out to? All who will come. Let me repeat that. That's a mouthful that you can get it. We could say the gospel is poor beggars called to sit at the table of salvation with Christ, to receive from him freely the bread of life and living water. And who is invited to this banquet? All who will come. And we see this in this throwaway comment that Christ dines with sinners. And we can't move past this imagery or think of the gospel without taking a moment to reflect on the Lord's Supper. For in one sense, we can say we have just dined with Jesus by faith. Through faith, we have been lifted up into the heavenly places and fed upon Christ. We have received the bread representing his broken body for us and then received the cup reminding us of his cleansing blood. If you have that imagery in in your head, does it not make you long for that day when you will dine with him face to face? in eternity. So, the beauty of the gospel is that it transforms us, rebel sinners, to beloved children. It welcomes us into the family of God at the expense of Christ. Then flowing then from verse 7, as we've just been thinking about the beauty and the hope of the gospel, we will see in verse 8, the transforming power of the gospel Follow along with me again in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. As we come to verse 8, I want us to start by asking this question Why was Zacchaeus able to part with his wealth, but the young rich ruler was not? Why was Zacchaeus able to part with his wealth, but the young, rich ruler was not? Well, if we go back to 18, verse 18, we see that the young, rich ruler sought to use the law as a covenant, covenant of works to achieve his salvation. And we see this in his statement in verse 18. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which then Jesus answers by giving him the law, not the gospel, by saying, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, 
and honor your mother and father. And the young rich ruler then replies to him, all these things I have kept. And Jesus then answers, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. Do you see what Jesus was doing in that passage? He was using the law to expose the young rich ruler's sin. For it is folly for us to try and seek to keep the law as a covenant of works. For its requirements is perfect, perpetual, personal obedience, which we cannot achieve. We cannot free ourselves from the bondage of sin Therefore, that is why Jesus said, with man it is impossible for a rich man to be saved, but with God it is possible. And that is what we see with Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus had received Jesus by faith, he had been united to him in his union, and then through his union he has been buried with him, and then raised with him to newness of life. Therefore, through his union with Christ, he had been set free from the chains and slavery of sin and death. Therefore, he could respond in evangelical repentance. You may pick up that I use the word evangelical repentance when I speak about Zacchaeus' repentance. And you may ask, why? Well, there's loads of false uh, repentances and many, many very various kinds So I want to be specific when we identify this repentance. For repentance is the idea of doing an about turn, turning from our sins or forsaking our sins. But how can dead people turn away or forsake sin? We must, by faith, be united to Jesus, the source of our spiritual life, to produce repentance. This is why it's called evangelical repentance because it flows from the gospel and our union with Jesus. It flows from our encounter with the Son of God who transforms us from the inside out. Therefore, we see Zacchaeus forsaking his wealth and being able to adhere to the law. Why? Because of his union with Christ. Fisco puts it this way, I think it's helpful. He says, only in Christ is the law transformed from a foe into a friend. Outside of Christ, we are under the law as a covenant of works. In Christ, we receive the law as a guide from the hand of Christ. And this is what we see in verse 8. Read again with me. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus is not trying to earn salvation by giving up his wealth, as was the case with the young rich ruler, but rather we see Zacchaeus offering up his wealth as an act of repentance. And we see that because Zacchaeus has been given much in Christ, he too freely gives much to others. For the Old Testament law only required wrongdoers to give back the original amount plus a fifth. But he is going to restore any he had frauded fourfold. And this raises the question, how does he go from being chief tax collector storing up his wealth to a joyful giver? Well, Because when you have Jesus, you have all that you need, and the things of this world grow 
dimly in comparison. But I do want to be careful and throw a caveat here by saying this account of Zacchaeus giving away all his wealth is not prescriptive or commanded of all believers, but rather descriptive. Meaning if you're wealthy and you come to Christ, you don't have to sell everything and give it to the poor. But rather the point of Luke giving us this detail is to show us the transforming power of the gospel that when people have Jesus, they have all that they need. They have new desires. They have a new master that they delight in serving. Think of Matthew 6, 24, when it says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In Christ, we are transformed and have new desires, a new identity. In him, we are made new. And that's what we see in Zacchaeus' new identity in verses 9 and 10. So our fourth and final point, the son of Abraham, verses 9 to 10. Read along with me, verse 9, firstly. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since since he also is a son of Abraham. In this verse, we see the new identity of Zacchaeus, a son of Abraham, compared to his old identity that we've seen in verse 2, chief tax collector and wealthy man. Zacchaeus was once defined by social status, once defined by his bank account, his position at work, and once defined ultimately by his sin. But now in Jesus, he is seen as a son of Abraham. He is one who is now trusting in the promises of God alone for salvation. But what does it mean to be a son of Abraham? For the Bible can use it in two ways. So what is Jesus meaning when he calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham? Well, let's look firstly at one way that it can be used It can be used purely of physical descent, talking about the physical descendants of Abraham who received the external benefits of the covenants, such as the covenant promises, such as the word of God, and they were God's chosen people for a specific period of time within history. But then, as John the Baptist reminds the Pharisees and the Sadducees that all these external benefits were useless without faith, For he said, God is able from the stones to rise up children of Abraham. Therefore, there is no use in depending on purely physical descent. So Jesus can't be talking about this when he says, Zacchaeus, you're a son of Abraham. So there's a second way. The Bible uses this term to talk about the spiritual sons of Abraham. Those who walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Who have faith in God alone for their salvation as Abraham did. These sons of Abraham are called Christs in Galatians 3 and 29. It says they are Christ, and therefore if they are Christ, they are heirs of the promise, promise of eternal life and being counted righteous through faith, as was their father. But these spiritual descendants aren't only Jews but Gentiles. For we see the mystery of Christ was all along that he was to redeem a people for himself, both Jew and Gentile, through himself, in himself. So here we see again, Jesus saves sinners without partiality 
for all that come to him he will not cast out. Therefore, in Christ, Zacchaeus is no longer defined by his past life or sins, but rather he is a beloved son of Abraham, heir to the promise. And this is true for you who are in Christ this evening. You are no longer defined by your sins or your past, for in Christ you have been washed clean. In Christ your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. Therefore, believer, look to Christ and know that you are his and that you are secure. Rest in the truth that Christ saves sinners. Flowing then in the first 10, we're going to see that that plan of Christ saving sinners has always been the plan since the very beginning. First 10, read with me. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In first 10, we see a fulfillment of an Old Testament promise from Ezekiel 34 where God promises to seek and save the lost. I'm not going to get us to turn to Ezekiel 34, but do, when you go home, just read it. It's some of the most glorious verses in the whole Bible. But I will just read for you verse 11, where we see the Lord speaking, and he says, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. And so why am I making this connection with Ezekiel 34 and verse 10? Well, because I want to see that we're so often used to when we read the Old Testament, we see how can we get to Christ, but we must not forget to read our Old Testament back and see that this is a fulfillment of a promise because the Bible is one whole coherent story about Jesus and the salvation that he will bring for his sheep. And this should bolster us when we see these fulfillments of promises because it gives us reason to trust evermore in God's faithfulness because time and time again, he always shows up. So in Luke 19.10, we see Jesus, the Son of God, seeking and saving one of his lost sheep, Zacchaeus keeping his promises that he would seek and save the lost and that not one of his sheep would be lost. Therefore, you who are Christ this evening, hear the words of John 10, 27 and 28. I know we read them this morning, but they dovetail really nicely with Ezekiel 34 and Luke 19. Hear these words, you who are Christ. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Know this evening, brother or sister, that we are safe in Christ for he is able and willing to save sinners. He offers us an accomplished, a full package salvation for all who come and rest in him alone. And then just to finish, I want to highlight two points from this text. First of all, though, I just want us to see, if you remember anything this evening, this text tells us that there is hope for sinners. There is hope for the hopeless in Christ Jesus. 
And that flows into the first point that I want us to remember, that the free offer of the gospel is to all. Hear the truth from verse 7, that Jesus, the Son of Man, dines with sinners. Jesus came not to save the righteous, but the sinner. And any sinner that comes to him, he will not cast out. Therefore, come and rest in him alone. And then the second point, I want us to just dwell on the faithfulness of God keeping his promises. Just flowing out of first hand and that promise and fulfillment from Ezekiel 34, let that be evidence that God keeps his promises. And he has said that he came to seek and save the lost and not one of his sheep will he lose. Therefore, you who are trusting in Christ know that he will keep you. We are in his hands and none will snatch us out. Let's come to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for that truth that before the foundation of the world, in love, you chose us in Christ, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your lavish and free grace. We thank you that we are safe in Christ. We thank you for that gospel hope that any who come, you, O Lord Jesus, say that you will not cast them out. And so, Father, I pray as we sing our next hymn that calls us to come and rest in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, make those truths a reality for us. Let us know your love for us in Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Yeah, thank you, Patty, for serving us so well there. We're going to respond by singing um, this older hymn, which has such deep, meaningful, and beautiful words. It's the hymn I heard the voice of Jesus say. If you're not familiar with this, um, do just listen carefully to the tone as we sing, and I'm sure you'll pick it up fairly quickly. So as the musicians begin, let's stand and sing.
bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please.